pursuing the truth, living in love. Veritas is a grassroots network of Catholic young adults growing together in Christ. For more information or to see a schedule of Veritas events, visit catholicveritas.com. That's catholicveritas.com. today's podcast, we are featuring a Monk's Cellar event with Catholic artist and speaker Leanne Tracy. Leanne graduated in 2012 from the University of Kansas with a BFA in painting and a BFA in art history and is now a full-time painter and visual artist. In this episode, Leanne offers a brief survey of Catholic art throughout church history and proposes how beauty can once again save the day for the Christian West and illuminate us personally in the process. Let's tune in. Okay, that's good. All right, so I'm so I'm so pumped for tonight's uh, speaker. And by the way. Again, Naomi is the one who organized uh, this speaker, invited Leanne. So uh, thank you, Naomi. You can thank her with a big round of applause, please. And she will introduce Leanne, who will lead us in opening prayers. Come on up, Naomi. where Leanne and I first forged our friendship on a retreat there. And the thing is, is at the time, uh, Leanne was discerning religious life, and now she is eagerly planning and preparing for her wedding. So, uh, you know, you know, when you're open to the Lord's will in your life, you know, he surprises us. And that's something that is truly a joyful thing to receive. So just a few uh, things about Leanne so you can better get to know who she is and what her background is. Uh, Leanne is a beautiful woman of the Lord, as I scroll to the part that I'm actually supposed to read here. Yes. So, she, Leanne Tracy, works as a full-time painter and visual artist. She graduated in 2012 from the University of Kansas with a BFA in painting and a BFA in art history. She has also had solo and group ex exhibitions in Kansas City, Lawrence, Nashville, Denver, Fort Collins, St. Louis, Springfield, Los Angeles, Berkeley, Milwaukee, Madison, and Florence, Italy. This past summer, she spent six weeks in Italy learning the technique of fresco painting for future commissions painting frescoes within chapels in the United States. She currently sells prints of her work online and paints commissions by request. So, with that, please give my friend and the steer woman of the Lord a warm welcome, Leanne Tracy, everyone. Thank you so much, Naomi, and thank you all for allowing me to be here in Roseville. It's such an honor. Can everyone hear me in the back? Is it okay? Alrighty, let's start in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we just open up our hearts, and we give you our days. We just ask you to be here and to flood this space, to be immersed in us, and to reveal the beautiful things that you have for our lives to show us the beauty of the church, 
and in your providence, Lord, and all you've provided. And Lord, we just give you this time, and we ask that you bless it and anoint it, and that whatever you desire for each of us, that you might unfold it into our lives. Lord, we give you praise, and we give you honor, and we give you glory, and we thank you for the beautiful life that you've given us. In this we pray, in your name, Jesus, amen. amen. Like Naomi said, my name is Leanne Tracy. I'm a painter and I live in Glenville, California, about five hours south of here. And I will tell you a little bit about how I got into painting, uh, as well as after that, I'll kind of give you a brief overview of how powerful art can be and why art's important. And then I'm gonna lead into a little bit of a overview of art's role throughout history. And then into the history of art within the church and then how that leads to our generation and why that's important and how then it leads even more intimately to us and our inner call that the Lord has for us so that's kind of a summary of where we're going so I started painting when I was really little and drawing I remember in kindergarten making a drawing of myself um, of what you want to be when you grow up and I drew myself as an artist and I went to undergrad and studied painting and art history, and when I graduated, I really wanted to do art full-time. But I remember so vividly going in the chapel, it was like November of my senior year, and kneeling down and saying, Lord, I wanna do whatever you desire for me to do, like anything. Like, I'll go to Africa, I'll, you know, I had like these lofty things, like, I'll go be a missionary, Lord, or like, I'll, I don't know, I'll go teach, or, um, I was really open to doing anything. and. So I knelt down and I said, Lord, just make it super clear what to apply for. And I walked out of the chapel and a focused missionary walked up to me and he said, Leanne, I need you to apply to focus. And I was like, if he would have said anything else, if he would have said, hey, like, I think you should think about this or hey, you'd be good at this. I'd been like, no thanks. Um, but he said, hey, I need you to apply for this. And that was my prayer. And so I went and served with Focus for three years. I was at Colorado State University, and then I was at University of Southern California in LA, and then I was at Cal for a year, so I was at UC Berkeley. There's one bear in the house, that's pretty good. Thank you. Um, and during that time as I was um, serving as a missionary, I was still creating art, and so I was using art as a form of prayer so this is off of a reflection of reading Chronicles of Narnia and kind of that intimacy of dialoguing with God or dialoguing with Aslan in the books. So this is a self-portrait of me as Lucy approaching God. And there's cards on your table. They're actually oversized business cards, what I was talking about, so it's like, why not? So you're free to take those home and there's more in the back if, you, if there aren't enough at your table. But I was still painting while I was a missionary, and I was kind of going back and forth, hanging out with a lot of art students, et cetera. And then I was um, afterwards served at Colorado State University in Fort Collins for two years in campus ministry. And as I was in ministry, I felt myself kind of like I had one foot up to the knee in art and one in ministry. I was working um, till like 5 p.m. and then going home and making art until like 1 a.m. And and I was I was receiving like little yeses and little little promptings to become an artist again. Not that I wasn't, but to do it more full time. 
And so I was doing commissions on the side outside of this, and I eventually got to a point where I felt like the Lord um, was asking more and more of me. People were like emailing me and Facebooking me and asking me to like make prints. I was like, oh no, like I'm not into that. Um, but the Lord just kept asking and asking. And it got to the point where I felt like either these two ponds had to merge and ministry and art had to become one, or I needed to pick. And in order to do that, I would have to choose in order to swim. Otherwise, I'd just be too um, either or. So one day I heard the Lord um, say in prayer, uh, in the depths of my heart, you know you could do it, right? And I was like, no, 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 no. And I was so afraid to be an artist because I really liked having health insurance. And I really, 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 really liked not having to worry about how I was going to pay rent. And having a salary was awesome. Um, and so I was like, no. Um, but more and more this call like really felt on my heart. So uh, it was last February, not this recent February, but the February before, I went up to my boss and I said, Father Rocco, you need to, you need to hire a new campus minister. And he's like, why? And I go, because I'm going to do our full-time music. Well, first he was like, finally! And I was like, am I that bad that you really, really want to hire a new campus minister? Like, you could have just told me, man. Um, and he was like, no, for the longest time I've wanted you to do art, but you're always doing ministry stuff. And I was like, okay. And he goes, well, do you know how to fresco paint? And I said, not really an American skill set, Father, but no. He goes, okay, talk to me when you know how, and left my office. And so I was like, talk to you never. <laughs> no thanks. And so then I talked to my other coworker, and he said, you would be an idiot not to, not to propose something. And I was like, but he, I don't know. So I went up to him, and I, I found a class in Italy. And he said, great, I need you to learn how to fresco paint, because I need you to paint my new church. father <laughs> okay cool but so that aside I was like that's too big to think about but I'll learn the process and go there so he said I'll cover the course fee if you get the rest covered and so I was like okay father right all right so that evening I called an artist friend and to tell her about it because I was excited and she's like great write a budget and my husband and I will pay for it I was like that's not why I called you um, and at all. And so sure enough, the day that I quit my day job, I was packing to go to Italy for six weeks to learn how to fresco paint. And so I start with this story um, because sometimes God is lavish and sometimes he's overwhelming with his beauty. And when we say yes to this, he sometimes overwhelms us with his yes back. Um, so this is the beginning of learning how to fresco paint. When you cut into the wall, you actually have to um, make grooves or paint onto raw brick. And you actually create the wet plaster and put it on. And then you mix pigments with water. Um, so there's no tubes. You just make it with the powder um, and mix it and keep going. And then each segment is added day by day. And so however much you can do in one day is how much is done. This is the, some of the pieces that made when I was there. We started on really small tiles and then worked bigger and bigger and bigger to learn the process. But I start with this because I think each of us have a heritage and each of us have a story. And our story and our heritage is deeply united with the entire heritage of the church. 
with what the Lord desired for us. And art has been in the church for a very, very long time. Um, since Christ has been around, the church has been the biggest patrons of, of art since he was alive. Um, they've been patroning or patronizing the arts for a very, very long time. And because of that, I think it's important to talk about how powerful beauty is and why beauty is important and the influence that it can have. So I'm going to first talk about um, a man named Hitler. I know it's a weird way to start talking about beauty. Um, but he was an artist himself. He wanted to go to school in Vienna and got rejected. I think looking back, they would have accepted him. Um, but he was in love with the city of Florence, which is where he studied. And if you've been here, this is called the Ponte Vecchio. And it's one bridge across the Arno River, which is here, that is um, still intact of how it was originally made. It's all jewelry um, shops going across. And then all the other bridges are just kind of normal bridges. And then along here, there's a street, and then the Uffizi Art Museum is right here. And Hitler loved how this was designed. He loved that art was the center of the city and that people could stroll along. And he found it to be so beautiful that in Germany, um, when they were going to bomb uh, Florence, he commanded to everyone that was going over um, with the air bombings not to bomb this bridge. So the reason why we have this intact is because Hitler was so mesmerized by its beauty. And the reason why we have the Duomo and the Uffizi, which is the art museum in Florence, is because Hitler loved it. And if, if he had enough, they would have bombed it. It would not have been there. And so I think that's a really interesting thing just to think about. Um, this was a design that Hitler himself created off of Florence. He wanted to build um, in his hometown of Austria to uh, have a strolling streets and similar bridges going across. And then he wanted to make a Führer Museum. And the Führer Museum was going to have the best art from all the world. And he was going to take that art in any way he could. So long before the war started, Hitler was going house to house to different Jewish families. He was going around to all of the big art collectors and he was interviewing them. So he'd just sit down and he was like, wow, yeah, can you bring out your grandfather's art collection? And he'd sit and he would kind of look through it all and kind of get the history of it. And some of it he would offer um, proposals. He'd say, okay, I'll take it for $1,000. And he was getting money because his face was being put on postage stamps and he'd get a cut for it. So he was using all that money to go buy and help these families. But he was offering one, one out of a hundredth of the worth of the art, and people were giving him out of fear. Well, when the, art, or when the war started, he knew and had tabs on art all over all of the countries. And so he went around and he started gathering them, first um, by negotiating, and then as the war got more and more crazy, he took it by force. He had um, different soldiers go out and everything was all calculated so that he could have every all control over, over all art in Germany and Austria. These men were called the Monuments Men. There was a movie recently put out, it was like um, recently, 10, 15 years ago, called the Monuments Men. This group of men came from all over Europe and from the United States and they were art collectors and curators with one mission and it was to defend and protect the heritage of the people. Because they knew that if Hitler succeeded, um, not only taking all of this art to create his own museum, but annihilating anything that he couldn't have, that he would destroy their culture and their heritage and them as people. 
So what he would do is he would hide them in salt mines, he would hide them in theaters, he'd hide them in abandoned houses, wherever he could. Some of the rooms that went in, they were stacked so tightly they couldn't even get the paintings out. And some of the theaters in the spaces that were bigger, they estimated were filled with about two billion euros worth of art. And now that would be estimated over a hundred times that worth because art naturally um, gets more and more worth as it ages. Anything that, that Hitler knew that the monuments men were onto his trail, he'd have his men burn. He would just ignite. Um, so some of these that was really lucky that, that the monuments men did find these. And these are men that came from farms and small towns in Nebraska and from different parts of Germany. One of the people that came was George Stout. He was a curator in the United States, kind of all over, but throughout um, most of New York's art systems. And George Stout was so famous that often, if you go into an art museum and you kind of stand up to a painting, all paintings are hung so that the middle of the painting is at 60 inches, because that's the most common eye level. Well, George Stout was so prop, um, prominent in the art world that they hung it two inches lower because he was a really short man. So that's how powerful this man was. But he, what he did was he enlisted to be a monuments man. Some of them would be in train carts going and it would just look like normal trains and they would have to track them and figure out whether the art was going. And some of them were just in houses. So this is a soldier looking at um, some of the pieces that were found. This is what George Stout says. You can wipe out a generation of people. You can burn their homes to the ground and somehow they'll come back. But if you destroy their achievements and their history, then it's like they never existed. Art is so important because it has, a, it has a feel on our identity. It has an understanding of our generation and our heritage, of where we come from and where we're going. It has a beauty that's so captivated that even one of the most intrinsically evil men who have walked our earth has, has a desire for it, to control it, to own it. And, and our, our history is kind of networked in that. And, grounded in that. And I bring that up because that's why it's, that's why it's important to talk about. Um, if men are willing to risk their lives to protect it, then sh shouldn't we? This is the trivia question. Um, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, one of the reasons it's famous is it's the first fresco that was ever made um, trying to mix oil and water materials. He found out very quickly upon um, finishing the piece that it was not a good idea because the oil and water repel and so the painting started to disintegrate. So it's also the most um, renovated painting. They're always trying to fix it and keep it and restore it um, and protect it. Well, if you see on the edge, the, so this is built in a monastery so that the monks could sit and eat and dine with Christ. And so their tables would come out from here. But all of this has been restored because during World War II, they knew they were going to bomb it. And so they did everything they could to protect it and to put up sandbags to prevent um, from it being destroyed. And the building indeed was bombed. The only wall that stood was Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper and the one wall supporting, and that's where you could see the other um, fresco work. 
And I bring this up because I think it's important to realize what goes into protecting art and defending it, but also um, just the pure history of what art's been through. Um, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper is one of the most reprodu um, reproduced images next to the Mona Lisa. I want to give you a brief overview of what art's role was throughout history. Artists had a lot of roles. Uh, up until the last 600 years, the concept of art for art's sake is kind of a, a rare thing. Like, that's a very new concept. Before that, it always had a function. Um, it always had a purpose. And even art for art's sake has a function and purpose. Um, but I think it's important to kind of go through to give some context of that. Most art had a sense of narrative or it was used in rituals, ceremonies, liturgies. It commemorated an event or described um, a piece of history that was important for passing down. Or it had a, a sense of a social context or didactic purpose. It was made to illustrate something or to teach something. And uh, in church history, this is very common. So when before many people were literate, the church used art as a way to evangelize. So people, when they walked into churches, they could learn the story of Christ through images and through preaching um, because they couldn't read scripture. This image is one of the oldest documented um, pieces from France. It's from the Lassou Caves, and I guess it's 30,000 years old. So if you think of like the Colosseum and walking through Rome, if you've ever been to Rome, and it, like, it has this antiquity and this like this feeling of heritage and of age, that's 3,000 years old. This is 30,000, um, so about 10,000, or 10 times as much. And this, both describe narrative. They painted in the caves um, of all the animals that they would go out and hunt, and they'd also use them in rituals. So they would draw the animals as part of a ceremony of allowing them, the boys, to come into manhood. And so they would take spears and they would practice throwing them at them. And once they had a point where they felt like they were ready for their first battle, they would take their hand and they would put it up on the wall and they would take a reed and fill it with pigment and water all meshed up. And then they would blow onto their hand to mark that they had become a man. So it's interesting how art has different functions and different purposes, um, but that it's always kind of continued that narrative of telling our story. Art often also commemorates events. It shows different events in history. Sometimes it's realistic, sometimes it's elaborated. Um, this painting is by Jacques-Louis David, and he was Napoleon's main head honcho painter. He did all of Napoleon's. So this is called the coronation of a Napoleon, and Napoleon is then also coronating his wife as, a, um, as his empress. And this painting is just kind of showing the detail of it. Um, I was listening to a podcast about it about a year ago, and they um, they altered a couple details to just, like they added people that weren't actually there, and but most of it is um, commemorating the actual event. This is kind of off of what I was talking about before, where the church would use story to really illustrate the faith. This is um, a paint, or painted chapel that's in Padua, and it's by Giotto. So if you've ever heard of Giotto, oftentimes this color is what he's famous for. Um, blue is a very hard color to get into fresco work. It's because it's a very intense pigment. And Giotto had a way to make it um, very beautiful. So he's known as, it's called Giotto's Blue. And this was um, by a, scrib 
a man named Enrique Scrivini, and he was a banker and wanted a personal chapel. And so he commissioned um, Giotto to do the entire chapel, and it was the early 1300s. And this just shows the teaching, kind of like the teaching and the purpose of illustrating, but also how sometimes art has multiple functions. So this is a social reason as well, um, kind of a political reason of Scrivini wanting to welcome in guests and kind of show them how pious he was, while also teaching um, the faith and having that as an important part of the chapel. This is an example as well of kind of that joint. This is in San Vitale, another, um, and it's in Ravenna, Italy. Ravenna was a small shipping town in Italy, and these mosaics are all over Ravenna, if you go, and these are all sixth century churches, so to go in to know that these were made in the 50, or the 500s, that's really old, you know? But Justinian was a ruler actually in Constantinople in Istanbul, and he portrayed himself as Christ. So he's carrying in the bread, and all his successors are, and all of his men are walking with him. And this is actually in the back of the church, where where the people would take the gifts up from the back up to offer them as bringing up the gifts. So he's on one side, and then Theodora's on the other side carrying the wine. So that's kind of an overview of some of the ways that art kind of has a role in history, of its purpose, of its function. Um, the church also has used art in a lot of different ways in times of need. One of the times of the needs is during the Reformation. There were a lot of questioning of the, the validity of church teaching. What parts of the church are actually like good teachings? What's, what, do we, what do we need to reform, etc.? And so after the Council of Trent, they had decided that there are a couple things that were too important to change. Um, this council went through making sure that the liturgy didn't change, that it was sound, that it was true. One of the things that they did change was the priest um, before had faced away from the people. He faced um, the tabernacle as a, a kind of a way the people went through the priest to go to God. And so they, they changed that so that he could face the the face of the people either way was liturgically correct. Um, they also emphasized that the veneration of saints was really important, that the Lord had people that were going through life with him and that they lived lives that were holy and that by, by having that um, relationship with them that we would know Christ more intimately. And they talked about the veneration of Mary and that Mary was Christ's mother and he honored her and he revered her as a mother and so the church then gave us permission to do the same if Christ loved his mother so much that we would be able to as well so these are important things during the counter-reformation that the church wanted to emphasize so one of the roles that they used for art was saying that art should emphasize everything that the church teaches and art should be a reflection of the church's theology so when we go into worship if there's art in the church it should lead us deeper into worship and so some of the reforms that they did do in the church, you see that, like um, in the Last Supper, I'm sorry, in the Last Judgment of Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, during this time they went and they covered up a lot of the nudity in there because they said this might lead people to lust, it might lead them away from worship, and so we don't want to go there. Later on, John Paul II came back and he uncovered them. And he was doing papal audiences on Wednesdays on love and responsibility in the theology of the body. 
And he said, actually, man is not intrinsically evil. We have original sin, and we have the tendency towards sin, but God made us good. He made us out of a plane of sheer goodness. And so the theology of the body is actually really beautiful, and we can expose that. And so John Paul's teachings then led us to know that the theology of the body is actually part of the church's teachings. One of the other responses the church did was um, during the Counter-Reformation is the papacy commissioned Bernini to make this. Does anyone know what this is called? St. Peter's Square. St. Yeah. Yeah. Peter's Square. What did you say? It's not very square. No, it's not square, but it's a piazza and they love those. Um, another word for this is called a colonnade. And it's, it's, it's an art historical repetition. Um, it's an archetype. And they repeat these, these columns. And most things holy up to that point before Christianity had these. So a lot of temples would have those, etc. So it was a way to look back at antiquity. But the reason it was designed like this and not square, although square would have been nice, but there's already buildings here, and so it wasn't going to work. Um, but they designed it to look like a papal hug. They wanted it to look like the arms that came out of the mother church. Because during this time, so many people were falling away to secularism, to, to Protestantism. They wanted to show that they were willing to go out into the people and to bring them back in. And then what they did is they lined on the top with sculptures. Does anyone know what the sculptures are of? Yeah, Vampire. Like all famous saints. Yeah, famous saints. So they at this moment were like, okay. We have two options. We can agree with what's happening, and we can say, you're right, we have saints. That's not Christ. We should choose Christ only. Or we can say, this is an important part of our heritage and our tradition, and we should go for it. And so they went for it, and they lined all. They chose, like, a lot of saints. Um, but it was important that it stood on top because it was a call for the people to stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before them, to stand up and to know as you're standing here that you are surrounded by not just yourself and your family, but generations upon generations and generations of Christians that have gone before us and that are living in union with Christ. And so during this time, decisions like this were very intentional. They were intentional because they invited people back into the intimacy of what the church taught. They said, okay, we, we may have flaws and we'll look at that, but we know for a fact that some things are good, true, and beautiful, and we will hold them. Decisions continued to make from after the high renaissance, and this time we went into um, mannerism, and then we went into Baroque. Baroque is known for its high emotion, um, and a lot of times the church would choose this to show how intense the intimacy could be with Christ. So this is St. Teresa in Ecstasy by Bernini, the same artist that did the sculptures on the top of the colony. And it was to show that faith didn't have to be stale. It didn't have to be um, anything that we thought that it had to be. Like, it, it is dynamic, it's true, it's full, it's beautiful, it's real. Bernini was one of the first sculptors to use mixed media. If you've seen the dove in St. Peter's Basilica, it's a dove with like clouds coming out with rays like this. That was the first piece that was commissioned by the papacy that was mixed media. So he was using all kinds of media all in one. And Bernini was known for this, and a lot of the Baroque artists followed in, in suit. 
this is Saint-Chapelle and, and this is in France. And I just want to show this as a, a kind of a image to show you how beautiful churches can be and how beauty does in, in fact transcend all else and how beauty is our call in our generation. It's, it's the next step. I hear a lot of times like, oh, the church doesn't patronize, like it doesn't give any patronages to artists anymore. Cause you know, like, you know, where's Bernini? Where's Michelangelo? Like, you know, we don't, we don't do that anymore. Well, one of the reasons is because during that decision of Council of Trent, when the priests started to face the people, there was a mindset change that happened there as well, where there became a deeper dialogue between um, the priest and the community. And the reason is because they decided at that moment um, that something that was always there, but then they named it, that every single person has a universal call of holiness. And this was a kind of new term, although they had been talked about before, but it was something that was emphasized. We have a universal call to holiness, and each of us are called to it. Well, some of the decision-making was changing there as well. Before this point, patronized art would come through the papacy, so people would donate to the church, and the church would don you know the church would decide, okay, we'll do this, and higher up and higher up, and together they built new churches and they commissioned artists. Well, there was a shift that started to happen where the people realized that if they were really called to something, that they could do something. So priests, instead of asking a general donation, would ask individuals, will you help me build my church? Kind of like that phrase from St. Francis, like, I'm called to rebuild the church. Will you help me? Um, and he'd go around and beg for stones. So what happened is examples like University of Southern California, when I was there, I guess it was about five years ago, they had just built a brand new church. Has anyone been there? Yeah? What's it like? It's crazy. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So that church, I guess, is about $30 million. And they, it was totally funded by parishioners, by people in the area that were really passionate about beauty. And they wanted, they wanted students to walk by it and be drawn by it, drawn to it. And as I was there as a missionary, I saw this. I was living on a floor with a lot of students from um, different parts of Asia. And there was one, Yaming, who found out that I worked there. And she's like, you, you work at that building? I'm like, yes, that's where I work. She, can I come with you to church? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, you can come. And she'd come. And this church was very intentionally built. It has the Old Testament at the bottom with the New Testament above it of all the parables. And so as you walk, it's, a, it's what we've always had. It's art for art's sake, but it's also very didactic. It's also very educational. And so she'd walk, and she afterwards she'd be like, what is a sower? Like, what is that word? Um, but she ended up coming to a Bible study with us. And I saw a lot of, of change in her and in just her persona, outside of spirituality and all of that. But art really does have a purpose. And that, that it looks different in our generation, but it still is important. Um, in our generation, we're still, we still have the same call. We have the call of the monuments men to protect and defend, and we have the call of being the next colonnade. And I, I ask you, like, are you brave enough to step out and to defend what is truly beautiful and good? And I ask that because in our generation, it's the things that are most beautiful that are being attacked the most. Our families, our gender, our, our core identity, new life, the elderly, 
Some of the most beautiful things are what Satan is attacking most intensely. And so we have a very important role in that. Some of it's in visual art, but a lot of times it's in our daily lives. The greatest response to beauty in today's generation is a small yes to the Lord's call for you. The most beautiful thing that you can do is say yes just the little thing that he's asking you that day. Whether it's to anticipate the needs of your spouse or your coworkers, or maybe it's something crazy. Um, when I quit my job, I, my sister called me, and she's like, Leanne, I quit my job. And I was like, why? <laughs> that's not a good idea. And she's like, no, because it was keeping me from being a mother. And I need something that's less emotionally intense. Like, I need something that I can just go to and come home and provide in the way I need to. But I don't need my job to be a part of my identity anymore, because my identity is as a mother. And I was like, oh, that's actually really awesome. I'm glad you quit your job. Um, but maybe it is. Maybe the Lord's asking you to quit your job. Maybe he's asking you to do something new. Maybe it's asking you to do one hour of volunteer work once a month. Um, whatever it is, he will reveal that to you. And that might be the most beautiful thing that you can say yes to. Does anyone know who this is? Jesus. Awesome in the back. A plus. Oh, oh, yeah, I think so. Uh, we'll take the other back. Hey, Naomi, will you make sure that sweet gentleman the, the, in the yellow, he can, he can have whatever he wants. <laughs> Excellent. Does anyone know who this is? Veronica. Veronica, yeah. Um, so I put Veronica in here, one, because I really, really like her, but also because all Veronica really did was anticipate the needs of Christ. She was He was walking along, and she saw, oh, our Lord is has a lot of sweat on his forehead and he's bleeding and she anticipated that he might need a friend and all she did was she went and wiped his face and that was so beautiful to our lord and as he gazes upon her he gives her a gift of his very self veronica actually means icon bearer it means one that looks like god and he as he takes the towel from her and presses it onto his face and gratitude gives himself back to her. And that's what he desires for each of us. If we just anticipate how to console our Lord in just the tiniest, tiniest way, he desires so intensely to give himself back to us. To do this is, is the most beautiful gift that we can have. This is where intimacy happens. And intimacy, I've heard, comes from into me you see. And Veronica, in that moment, saw our Lord very intimately. But our role in our culture, our culture that, just like Hitler, went out to both kind of take all for himself and to destroy everything else, um, is very similar. Our call is to be Christ in the midst of that, to be beauty in the midst of the intensity that's around us, and to receive our Lord and just let him come out from us. One of the ways to do this um, is to live magnanimously. And this word means greatness of soul. To live so courageously when no one else is watching, um, to live generously and charitably in each moment to decide that, 
And the artists that we see in history, musicians, poets, architects, the whole like, um, they, they all chose to generously give up their talent. And maybe you have a talent where the Lord's asking you to do something similar, whether or not you're an architect or play piano or the violin. But he's also asking that outside of our giftedness. He's asking that out of our character. And to serve out of our character is, is where true character is formed and true virtue is formed. So I hope that through this encounter, this brief like crash course into 10 seconds of art history, this is like crazy, um, that you can kind of get a feel of the importance of art, uh, the depths of art, of where it comes from and where it's going and how it plays in our life. Um, most of us aren't art collectors or maybe don't have any kind of knowledge of art or maybe we know a lot of art like Carlos and he knows that, I don't know, Leonardo da Vinci painted in Milan. That's really cool. I love that. <laughs> um, maybe we don't, don't know that, but we do know that the Lord has a call for us. And our call goes both from our generations of history, that's very important to us, but also for today, and this next week, and this next month, and each decision that the Lord invites us to. And so I just invite you to have courage in that, to live beautiful lives, and to live lives that are magnanimous. Thank you. John asked, do you take questions? I said, oh yeah. Yes, of course. That gala 2018, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Pass? <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. Did he say the Met? Okay. If people have heard about this Met gala. I don't. I thought. I thought he said a person's name. I was like, I don't know who that is. Um, so the Vatican recently, there was a lot of controversy at the Met, and the reason the controversy is there is because the Vatican. Um, gave permission to the Metropolitan Museum in New York to have artwork. And they've been trying for like 20 years to get artwork from the Vatican, and they're like, no, no, no. Well, um, Chaput ended up endorsing it, saying it's okay. For the Vatican's sake, I'm not sure if they knew the fundraiser was happening. I'm sorry, Dolan. Who, yeah, I'm sorry, I am not from New York. Um, Dolan, sorry. Uh, I don't know how, if he knew the intensity of what was going to take place. From an art perspective, um, for a museum to lend art is very, very normal. If you ever go to a museum and there's a rotating exhibit, it's extremely common for museums. It's like zoos. They pass off animals. and um, Museums let each other borrow. So for the Vatican to give the Met work is actually extremely common. And for them, you know, it's... it's um, I don't think that they would have known the intensity of what was going to happen. For those that haven't heard about this, the Met borrowed a lot of artwork from the Vatican and then through this huge fundraiser and most of the celebrities showed up extremely scandalously dressed in clothing, um, desecrating the church. And I think what's scary for us as Catholics is I don't think that they would have done this to the Jewish tradition or people from Islam. If like, if Islamic artwork came over, they would not have attacked it. And so there's a truth that needs to be defended. Um, but I don't think on the Vatican's part that they would have known the intensity that would have happened. Um, as an, from an art perspective, that would have not even been a concept that they would have considered happening. Yeah, ex excellent question. Sorry, I'm misreading. That was a random person I didn't know. 
Yeah. Who, uh, in your opinion, are the uh, Da Vinci's of our day with any any sort of media or mixed media? Yeah, that's a good question. There's an artist, his name is Anthony Visco, and he's originally out of Pennsylvania, but he just started a school in Florence. I didn't actually attend, um, but it's called the School the school of the sacred school of sacred art, and he is an incredible artist. He's done a lot of um, different shrines. He did an Our Lady of Guadalupe shrine um, and different church paintings. So he's really a pillar that a lot of people are looking at. Um, it's kind of a revolutionary of re bringing church art back. So I think he he's somebody to look at. Anthony Visco. Christopher Nolan. Batman, Inception. Huh? <laughs> well, well, really, though, as far as film being a mixed media, like it's got it's got it all. Right? You know, and forget about Nolan, but who do you think is doing Catholic film better than anybody, or who has? Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just gonna be straight up. I don't watch films. I'm very really? sorry. I mean, I watch some, but I, I'm not enough for everyone to sit here and listen to me talk about it. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I believe. Um, at, at the time of the Reformation, there were um, iconoclasts mm -hmm. who would destroy Catholic art, specifically, mm -hmm. but they also called themselves Christians and said that uh, the art was actually getting in the way of connecting mm -hmm. with God. I was just curious, like, what uh, your perspective is on that. Yeah, so. I, they assumed that they were doing well. He asked about a kind of. A, iconoclasm where they would destroy images and a lot of them were Christians or even Catholic and this was during the Reformation and this was happening because they really did think it was getting in the way of worship and they thought if Christ alone scripture alone was important that these other things were just fluff that were just there um, a lot of times people even have that I think the Calvinists kind of have that mindset still and don't quote me on that I'm not positive um, but I, I do not believe that's true, but I can understand what, like good intentions of trying to keep people from sinning. Um, they're doing that to try to protect people, but art oftentimes can be good and beautiful, or it can hold other, people can hold other opinions. But I think that this was a theological reasoning. Yeah, Naomi in the back. Um, I think there's a lot of misunderstood art. So a lot of times people are like, oh, modern art is so bad. It's like, well, some of it holds different purposes of what we've ever looked at. So a lot of modern art is created because there's an actual, okay, so there's an actual tradition in painting of elements and principles and design, and a lot of times modern art actually repels against that. So the intention of making the art is to destroy tradition or to go against it. It's like a rebel against it in the art world. So it has purpose and has meaning that some people identify very, very strongly. I'm a more traditional artist, and so I like tradition. I like art to have a reasoning and guidelines to follow. Um, so I'm less drawn to it, but I understand why the concepts are there. So in the last um, probably 500 years, it's been, a lot of art's been a lot more conceptual. It has, it has a different purpose than what we've seen in the past. And so bad art, I can, I can think it's bad, you can think it's bad, but not in like a relativistic way, but just art really does hold different purposes. And a lot of times the purpose is to reject what we know. 
which is hard to grapple with. Mm -hmm. I get two. So, as you said, the uh, the Reformation, mm -hmm. where the Protestants are like you know you and your Catholics, Catholics and all your stuff other than Jesus. Then the Catholic response in the art world was the, the Baroque response was like, oh yeah, we'll give you this stuff and that stuff and stuff over there and stuff in that corner and like boom, you know, like Baroque, right? And then in Va the Vatican II, sort of similar Protestant revolt, you could you'd say, right? Mm -hmm. And they're and they're like you and all you and all your stuff besides Jesus. And Catholics are like, yeah, you're right. Let's just take it all out. We'll have warehouse churches and polyester vestments uh, you know it's like that was ugly and we're dealing with it now uh -huh. we got ugly churches ugly music ugly vestments really ugly, ugly programs ugly we're swimming in ugly and I guess my question to you is are we ready for you know Baroque the sequel like are we poised for Baroque 2.0 you know uh, and do, do we need it, or is there a better response that we should offer? Well, I, I think the pendulum always swings. It goes one intensity to the other, and the 70s was the intensity in the other way against Baroque. Um, but I think people are always striving, they desire holiness, and they truly desire, okay, what kind of charism or feel is going to bring us that? Like, if we go to a more simplistic look, is that going to, you know, or we're going to focus on this instead? I think we are in a kind of middle ground at this point. I think what we truly need as a church is the threshold of each person responding to what they're actually good at and what they're called to. What we need is we need graphic designers to step up and design some serious like logos for some churches. And we need people to design bulletins that know about spatial awareness and how things go because let's be honest, like sometimes the people doing the bulletins don't know. They're designing it on word and that's difficult and that's challenging. And that doesn't lead us into worship better. Um, so in reality, like what are we ready for as a culture? That's an excellent question. I think people are really thirsty for that. Um, but what we need, I think, is the deeper question. I think it's we, each church needs people to step into what they're grappling about. What they just, what really gets at them is probably what they're called to do in, for the church. Yeah, of course. So you talk about the church being, you know, a patron of the arts. Yes. And, uh, Generally speaking, public support for the arts. You look at, at you know great architecture, sort of standing out, you know, most obviously requires or at least has uh, benefited from public support. Uh, the movies that John was talking about a moment ago, really that's a private enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. Is um, and this is a genuine question. Is, do you think there that we're a little bit out of adjustment, out of whack, as far as art as, as a private enterprise to raise money for this and that, as opposed to a public function that deserves and requires public support. Are you talking art in a whole or from a... Talking about very generally speaking. Okay. I'm talking about, you know, go to Washington, D.C., the beautiful buildings, they were put up by, essentially public efforts, they were put up by the government, right? right. And you look at the, the horrible office buildings in downtown Sacramento, and that's free enterprise baby. So, I mean, is there a we gone too far in, in the, the private versus the public effort? Right. I mean, I think as an American people, we're always going to have that. There's no one on top <coughs> deciding everything for everyone. Um, that might be an intense government change. 
Do we benefit from public art? Yes, sometimes, sometimes no. They've done a lot of public land, like public art. That's where you see like the piss Christ and things like that that happen. And that's where sometimes things like that do get scary. And so same thing, it goes one way, really, really beautiful things happen and the other way not. And it's because of our own human tendencies to like different things. Some people like really aesthetically beautiful things and some people designed, whoever designed that, I don't know. If they're in their room, well, I'm sorry, anything's that way. <laughs> um, yeah, either way, whether it's privately owned, if it's a private enterprise, if it's by the government, we see, I think we see flaws both ways. Um, do we do we need people to advocate for more beautiful things? Absolutely. Do we need architectures to step into that? Absolutely. Um, filmmakers, musicians, poets, all around, absolutely. Um, what that looks like, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Is when art was made, you know, 500, 600, it was a top-down approach. People from the top, which were monarchies and were popes, decided or bishops right. on the art. Now it's sort of a democratized, and you have abstract expressionism. In it. But there was a philosophy that went with the art. Mm -hmm. Do you think the art is leading the philosophy now? Well, it depends. It's hard to generalize because still some of those kind of like abstract expression, expressionisms. Some of them are artists that are creating what they want and then people pick them up. Other people are, others are people actually fueling like no, like Jackson Pollock didn't want to keep doing motion paintings. He was done with it, but it was selling so they made him keep doing it. So sometimes you see both sides of it, um, but the same thing. It's, but Rembrandt was doing Catholic portraits mm -hmm. when it was unpopular in that time in history. In that place, right. you know, yeah. but he was impoverished by the time he died. Mm -hmm. And so. a lot of artists see that. Yeah. I think even as myself going into art, it's been interesting because sometimes I create art for art's sake and what I truly feel called to paint as an artist. And sometimes I paint other things that are less exciting to paint, you know. And so I think a lot of artists kind of go back and forth in that of, okay, creating something that fit into the salons, or do they fit into this gallery, or do they fit into the government, or, you know, am I, as Napoleon's main painter, and painting Napoleon, is that what Jacques-Louis David wanted to paint? No. Eventually he went into neoclassicism and loved it. Yes, you know. So, it's the same thing. It's like sometimes, it's hot and cold. It's, To other artists, greatest advice to other artists, I think to trust yourself um, and to not be overwhelmed by the things around you. Everyone is always better than you are. Um, there's always going to be somebody that's more established, that's more better off, that's has commissions, that has this, this, that. But you know inside what you're called to do. I was telling um, VP at the table earlier, I applied to grad school a couple of years ago to two universities and didn't get in. And I had a friend told me, he said, are you applying to grad school so you can be an artist again? I was like, oh, absolutely. He was like, you're dumb. <laughs> I was like, why? And he was, all of your portfolio right now is Catholic art because that's what people have commissioned you to do. Maybe you're actually called to that. Like maybe that's what you're supposed to do and maybe that's your niche. And if so, what is an MFA gonna do for you? It's gonna kill you. It's gonna kill your style, it's gonna kill what you're called to. So I think of an artist, regardless of what that is, if it's poetry, if it's architecture, if it's going to work each day, um, to really like hone in to who you are and let that be okay. Yeah, and the blue. Mm-hmm. 
think that's a, a valuable question. What can we do? Um, I think when you see opportunities to seize them, because I think back to the lady who supported me, like she had no intention of building up artists. And then because of that and another painting I had painted, I took a piece of board that I found in a dumpster and I painted two angels holding the Eucharist on them just because that's what I wanted to paint. A lady walked in my studio and she said, I'd like to buy that. And I was like, I, uh, the wood's warped and I trash picked it, but you can have it. And she's like, no, I'd like to pay you $1,000 for it. Uh, and I was like, why? You know. But if you find those opportunities, that moment single-handedly made me decide that I was going to be an artist. And now paintings that I sell, most of them are a thousand dollars. You know, it's like, okay, I just paid my electricity bill. Woo! You know, um, but that's like that moment that you find as an individual in a parish or even in a workplace to build up and support young artists. It's it's in the moment opportunities. In the white in the back. This is kind of a systematic approach to art, uh, but how do you, as an artist, enter into the spirituality of the piece that moves? Mm -hmm. What do you look for? What moves you? Mm -hmm. Can you repeat this question? Let me repeat your question. You can tell me if I'm off. As an artist, how do I enter into the spirituality of what I'm painting, and how do I find things that move me in it? No. So how uh, when you see a piece? Okay. What what do you look for that allows you to enter into the spirituality of the piece? Oh, okay. Um, did you hear that? Okay. So as an artist going into a museum or going in and praying in front of an image, how, how do I enter into the spirituality of the image to, okay. Um, I, I think it's very similar to praying like with Lexio or praying with scripture where you read through scripture really slowly and when something pulls and moves you, that to stay there and to linger there. Um, when I look at a painting and I either, if it is in prayer, if I'm entering into a space and see art, I'll go in a museum and my friends hate going to museums with me because I'll walk through like three rooms and I'm like, meh, meh, and then I'll be in one for like three hours. When I was a little girl, I was like 14 and I was in Spain with my family and they left me in the Sofia, um, Reina Sofia because I was so moved by Pablo Picasso's Guernica that I wouldn't leave. I was in there for like an hour. They're like, what is wrong with this girl? But to find the one thing and to figure out why it moves you. And later on I figured out is because I have this thing inside of me of justice and what happened on that day. So the painting was painted because the, it was the first time that people had ever, or a group of military had ever bombed innocent civilians. So they bombed when all the soldiers were gone and it was just women and children in this town. So even though it's an abstract and like brutal black and white image, it's like monumental in size, 47 feet long and 11 feet tall. And it's because of that justice inside of me where I said this isn't just and there's something about it that captivated me that I had to figure out. Um, there's something every single piece of art can teach us. Some of it, it's not, we're not called there, you know. But some of it, it moves our spirit and it's important to understand why. Um, what is it about that one piece that the Lord's actually speaking to you as, um, speaking into you as? And so a lot of times religious art is really powerful to take with you into prayer. If there's an image that stands out to you that you see like on social media or you see at a museum, to have a picture of it that you pray about because there's a lot of 
there's a lot of depth that can teach you about yourself and about what the Lord desires for you. Yeah. Well, who are a couple of artists that really just inspired you to be an artist? Inspire me as an artist? Yeah, I mean, obviously Picasso impressed you. Yeah, that one piece did really impress me. Um, I, let's see, I really like Tintoretto. He's a Venice artist. Yeah, Venetian. And he had this crazy way to depict um, space. So he had these intense angles like he has the last supper but when you walk up to it there's like a gap in the painting where you're like standing so he automatically brings you into the intensity of the scene and the way he just did, he kind of was um a caravaggio post he has like the same intensity of the intense black and white and bright colors and dark colors and light and darkness contrast. so i really like tintoretto um i was i went to Monet's garden to paint last summer and i was really moved by his process of planting and watching things grow and tending and tilling and then painting and seeing how it all like played in that was a really powerful experience for me to experience his process as an artist and then i'd say i do like caravaggio a lot the monumentality of his lights really draw me in i'd say a modern artist i looked at antonio visco a lot um as well as um, there's an artist her name's Anne Harrington and I actually her knew her sisters they were my roommates in Berkeley and so she's a young mom um, but I just follow her on Instagram but she has this ability to paint flowers that are very like uh, mirroring the reality of the mysteries of the rosary and so I, I enjoy following her just as a contemporary who's kind of like in a similar state of life a few more kids don't have any but um, but a similar state of life as an artist in the red um, can you comment on the church's relationship with like ancient art even as a caretaker of ancient mm -hmm. art and yeah, of course. So the church as a whole, like the Vatican Museums, hold ancient art and protect it and have it a part of their history. Part of um, the tradition of Christian art actually mirrors and looks back to ancient art a lot. Um, even when Christ was around, he would use images from ancient art. So there's an image of him with um, as a good shepherd with and that was made I think in like the in 300 of him with the sheep over his shoulders and it matches a Greek archetype identically and part of the reason is because Christ saw that these people that were coming into Christianity a lot of them came from pagan roots from um, different roots from Jewish roots and so there's a lot of um, kind of things that touch into each other and so because of that particularly the church is very fond of protecting that um, it doesn't I mean it doesn't always happen but I only mentioned it. Have you ever read any G.K. Chesterton? Um, no, I haven't. Okay, he was, he's most famous Don't give me that writer, look. No, was, it's boring. He went to school as an artist before he became a writer. But he, um, in his, he has an epic poem called The Ballad of the White Horse. And it's, he, he talks about how Christianity had always held on to even the ancient pagan arts as a heritage of humanity. You know, it's a very powerful passage because it's basically, um, King Alf, Saint Alfred the Great of England is speaking to these Danish Viking invaders of England and he talks about that that because there's this huge in England there's a huge sculpture that's cut into the turf called the White Horse it's a hundred meters it's like a football field in size it's cut into the there's chalk 
the ground is chalk. And so it's ancient, but it's always been protected even by the Catholics who live there for that very reason. Yes. Yes. Um, my question is, thank you. Um, my question is, when you're at the Adoration Chapel and you told God, like, I'm going to do whatever you want to do, whatever your will is going to be done, what brought you to that mindset in the first place? Like, you know, saying, like, forget about society's opinion about, you know, being an artist and stuff. Because I feel like that relates to a lot of stuff that people struggle with in this world. They choose society's opinion over, like, God's opinion. So, like, what made you decide to, like, just push that away and just, like, put yourself in that mindset where, like, your mentality went over your fear of what people thought? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I truly desired what he desired and I wanted to give that to him in case because I knew I'd be happier um, if he led me there like I went into college being like I'm gonna be a high school art teacher that's just what I'm gonna do everyone else like changed their major like 15 times I was like no this is what I'm gonna do um, but and then what I ended up doing was teaching the faith and learning a lot about myself um, so I think that it was more so a, a double check like yeah I would like to be an artist I was like looking at being an artist with NASA and doing designs for them, and then I was like, wait, I'm not a designer, and I don't really know anything about engineering in any, but like that just wouldn't be good. And so I think I identified that I was grasping at things, and if that was true, that maybe the Lord had something better. Um, in the back. There is an oral tradition that St. Luke was, that did indeed paint one of the first icons of Mary. Okay, one last question. Yeah, Do you have an Instagram? <laughs> do, you, do you have an Instagram? I do have an Instagram, it's Leanne S. Tracy. And then my website is on the back of the cards. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, uh, very good. Uh, let's close in a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. <coughs> Jesus, Son of Mary, we offer ourselves to you completely. We give you great thanks and praise for calling us together tonight. We ask you to unite us in the simplicity of your love. We ask your loving uh, hand and guidance and blessing upon Leanne and the great work that she's doing for the church. And we ask you to open all of us and make us receptive to reflect your splendor in all that we do. And so we consecrate our, our time here together and our evening and our families and our friendships as always to your mother's immaculate heart as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Luke. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One more big hand for Leanne Tracy. It was a beautiful, beautiful time. Thank you for coming out. Veritas is sponsored by St. Joseph Morello Parish in Granite Bay, California. 
and St. Mel Parish in Fair Oaks, California. Our podcast features recordings of live talks delivered to young adults packed into the best pub in California, Monk's Cellar. If you're age 18 through 39 and find yourself in the Sacramento area, join us at a live event. Learn more at catholicveritas.com. Thank you.